Good morning. Welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. We're reading the entire Bible together, one chapter at a time. We're looking at Isaiah chapter 5 today, and it's more poetry here, but it's a different sort of poem. It is described as a song here, and it's another one of these turning points in the early part of Isaiah. Chapter 6 gets into this vision that Isaiah has of the throne room of God, and I'm really looking forward to doing Isaiah 6. That's going to be great. It's where we get the the holy, 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 the thing that we say in church together, that we sing together in church, and so that's well known. But this one's maybe a little bit less well known. This is the song of the vineyard, uh, but the imagery here, it's so rich. This is the sort of imagery that informs so much of the New Testament, you know, when our Lord says that he is the vine and we are the branches, uh, when he has his own parables about vineyards in the New Testament. So all of this stuff really just you know, drawing and connected to Isaiah. Um, So a turning point between, like we saw, these first two visions in Isaiah chapter 1, and then the one that that we just finished that ends in chapter 4, and now this one. So answering the questions, okay, how does this fit in? Um, You know, which which kings, which time frames are Isaiah talking about here? You know, so these are the questions we want to answer. We want to get into this imagery about the vineyard. What does it mean what does it mean for them? What does it mean for us? How do we see ourselves in all of this? And joining us today, we have as our guest, we've got Pastor Neil Wemus, pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church in Ida Grove, Iowa. Welcome, brother. Good to have you with us. I think this is our first time together on the air, right? Yes. <clears throat> yes, it would be. Well, so great to have you. And um, I, I, have you probably, you've probably been on Thy Strong Word before, um, when it was uh, Pastor Whedon, right? No, I actually have not. I've I've been on Sharper Iron a few times, but oh, okay, not on okay. here before. Oh, well, great! So. Well, fantastic making making his Thy Strong Word debut. Then, thank you so much for joining us. Um, and yeah, and looking at Isaiah too, no less um, a great book to start with. Um, have you have you done much with Isaiah five in the past? Has this been something that's come up in Bible studies for you in your context, or is this something that um, I don't know that you've had much interaction with when teaching people. Actually, to be honest, not a lot. Uh, there's a couple. The parable of the vineyard, or the this the song of the vineyard. Right. Um, the one thing that I just noticed specifically, there's a couple verses that um, right away this sounded familiar, though, and that's from the Good Friday liturgy, mm-hmm. and so verses two through four are in the reproaches of the chief service of Good Friday. And, but right. otherwise, yeah, it's not one that I've really dug into. And so yeah. I, I will mind, well, I've, been doing, I've been doing a lot of digging in preparation, reading, reading through the commentaries and everything I can get my hands on. Yeah. So, well, I mean, Isaiah's just, and, yes. Well, that, and that's fantastic. And, and, and I mean, I feel the same way. I mean, really it's, it's not a chapter in Isaiah, kind of like I was saying, that's really all that common to, to really take up and interact with. Isaiah is just so huge. And, you know, yeah, like everybody, you know, is a little bit familiar with Isaiah six. And of course there's some of those later chapters um, that, you know, just come up in a, in a really big way, right. In, in our good Friday liturgy, um, but actually, I had even forgotten this was so the which which verses are it again that are in the Good Friday liturgy in here in chapter five? Uh, verses two through four. So it's in the reproaches. Uh, so it's not in the Tenebrae service it'd be in the uh, chief service. So a lot of uh, okay. a lot of congregations probably do the Tenebrae. Yeah. Uh, so right. they wouldn't hear it. But mm, I've mm-hmm. uh, the reproach reproaches is one of the most gut-wrenching and powerful moments in the Good Friday uh, liturgy. And, and it's kind of, it's very fitting as you read this whole chapter. I mean, if anybody's, my whole thought as I was reading through this is if anybody was coming in for an uplifting text today, this is not it. <laughs> so. Right, right. Well, you know, hey, thankfully we had Isaiah chapter 4 yesterday, right? You know, we got a little bit yeah. of relief from all the law here. Okay. And, you know, and then, you know, next time we'll get Isaiah six with the heavenly throne room. So, Hey, you know, it's okay. We, we can, I think we can handle Isaiah five today. We'll, we'll really be looking forward to Isaiah six, I think, but, um, you know, you get chapters like this. It's okay. 
Yeah. Uh, very, very good. Very good. Well, hey, let's go ahead and dig into this then. And as we do, would you pray for us and for everyone listening? Yeah. Uh, Lord God, Heavenly Father, uh, we come to you in prayer this day, praying your blessing upon the, the time as we read through your word as it is proclaimed and written in the book of Isaiah. And we pray that the word would pass from our lips to the ears, from the ears to the heart, and from the heart to our life, that we would be witness of your gospel and your word in the world that we live. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. All right, well, let's get started here with, well, perhaps, I mean, you mentioned that two through four have that extra liturgical significance. So maybe let's start with one through four. And we can kind of ask a couple questions in terms of both uh, how that fits in with Good Friday, but also how does this work as a transition after Isaiah chapter four? What does it have to do with the things that came before it? So let's just take the first four verses to get started. Isaiah chapter five, beginning verse one here in the English Standard Version. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? All right, so pausing there, you know, we have this this metaphor of this vineyard here. Um, I was thinking about it. I, I mean, it really, it is a shift here, you know, the, especially in verse one, let me sing for my beloved. The the voice is uh, substantially different from what you have in, in chapter four. So there's a, there's a big change going on. It's the, it's the start of something new. And yet it's not totally different. In chapter four, we did see here, in verse two, you had that phrase, in that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. So uh, there's kind of both some continuity with chapter four and some and some discontinuity, wouldn't you say? Yeah, well, and the thing, uh, verse, chapter four um, definitely ha- serves as the backdrop. So, but it's, you know, you have to kind of have that in the background of this is what is I mean, it doesn't right away you don't know it, but eventually you're going to get to that, okay, chapter four is going to become very important because it's, um, again, laying down the groundwork of what four is prophesying. And uh, one of the things that's, so I was kind of reading, when I was looking through the researching on this, it's um, Uh looking to the backdrop of this, um, and the theory is that this was, this would have been spoken, audito- it would have been spoken auditorially, and mm-hmm. they, and actually would have, might have been sung, and so because it is a song, and it right. kind of makes. I was kind of testing around to see what it would sound like if I tried to use the chance what it would sound like, but mm-hmm. um, the thing is, is it's, you know, when they're hearing this, this the backdrop is it's maybe this is being spoken at the, um, at the vintage festival. And mm. so it's supposed to be a time of celebration. And so when he's starting out this, it's supposed, he says, my beloved, my love song, right. turning his vineyard and people are like, Oh, this is sounds so nice. It's sweet. And you could hear yeah. and right. all halfway through verse four, it's, you know, he says, what more could I what more was there that I, to do for my vineyard that I have done for it? And they're like, nothing. You, you did wonderful. And then that last half, like, why did it yield wild grapes? And it's just, uh, right. yeah, it's a very mm-hmm. shocking change. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, that, and that makes a lot of sense. I mean, of course, you you think to our, our our Lord in the New Testament how it seemed like you know when he offers a metaphor or some kind of analogy or parable, he's very often just drawing on the scenery that he finds himself in. You know, he's over by a fig tree and he's like, "Let me tell you about fig trees, right?" Uh, you know, or it's like there's like a young child in their midst and he says, "Let me let's talk about children," right? So it seems like you know he he kind of takes what's at hand. So it wouldn't be surprising to me if if Isaiah was uh you know perhaps like you said even he starts singing this you know at um like a festival uh celebrating the harvest festival perhaps something like that um it's you know it's interesting too to consider it does it does say that it's a song right i mean he says it twice in fact i mean he says you know let me sing right and then he says it's a love song um and there's no reason not to take that literally um something that you know, I mean, you and I know, but something that is uh, probably easily forgotten, the Hebrew text that's most commonly used by people um, is, is based off the tradition of a group of guys called the Masoretes. And it's included, included with it is a bunch of a, a set of cantillation marks that is singing notation. Um, so literally, we, we don't simply just have accent marks on our Hebrew Bibles here, but but it's not quite like musical notes, but they are signals for like how you would chant this, which is just really interesting because, of course, it's not like the Masoretes were like the original keepers um, of the Old Testament. But there is a, a very early on tradition that when people kept the Old Testament by memory orally, um, they did it not just by reciting it in prose, but by singing it. And uh, makes a lot of sense when you consider that perhaps even most of Isaiah was originally sung. Mm-hmm. But so the thing that another thing about that, though, which I think is striking, is that he goes and, you know, he says not, not only, you know, is this a song, you know, let me, let me sing a song about God or something like that. But he says... Uh, let me sing a song for my beloved, my love song. So it's, it's pretty interesting for Isaiah to refer to, I mean, I, I think that the way to take this is that my beloved refers to God. For him to refer to God as his beloved, I was struggling to think of another time when, um, well, when pretty much anybody refers to God that way. <laughs> what do you think? Well, it's actually, so again, when I was looking through the commentaries, um, one of the things that's interesting as they're talking is that when they, the way he starts this is that if, you know, if he were to, if you were to show, say this like right at a festival is at first they would not realize this is God who is the one that's singing. So at first Mm. they might think it's the person that's singing. And so in the word, in the vineyard, um, is quite often uh, um, used for uh, is an allegory for a wife or for a bride, and so they're hearing this as a you know this romantic love tale, and again it's and then it's not until towards the end that you really hit home that hey this is talking about God. It's not until really verse the end of verse six when it becomes very obvious as to who who the person who's the singer mm. and so well and, that, and that's interesting because it does seem like the um i mean the voice seems to switch though right like in verse one you have let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard right and then in verse three and now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. So, I mean, I mean, when I was reading that, I was like, oh, I mean, it, it seems like it's a switch from I, Isaiah speaking, perhaps um, on behalf of all of Israel um, in that relationship between Israel and God, which we do see in the prophets very commonly depicted as a husband-wife relationship, like just like you were saying, like, you know, like with that vineyard uh, metaphor. So, I mean, at first it seems like it's Isaiah, but then there's that switch there in verse 3 where all of a sudden it's talking about my vineyard, um, and it seems like God is the one who who is taking over in, in verse 3 as, as the speaker. Mm-hmm. Or I see it as referred to as, it's the first part is the, the friend speaking, 
And then mm-hmm. now this is the um, verse three. Now it's the the odd the um, the subject is now right. speaking. Right, right. Yeah, right. Yeah, you can imagine it like, you know, like the, fr- the friend of the groom, at like a wedding or something like that. Right. And then it switches to the voice of the groom himself. And everyone, like you said, is set up to think this is a nice, pretty love song. Um, but it's going to get really serious really fast. Um, and it's because it gets so serious so quickly that, as you were saying, this this does fit in well for Good Friday. So so how did you said this was um is in, in the reproaches. So how does this fit in and function in that Good Friday liturgy? Because as you said, a lot of our listeners might not be very familiar with it because, I mean, just speaking from my own experience, most churches I've been a part of um, have that very unique um, and very memorable tenebrae service on Good Friday. Um, and sometimes, you know, you know, we get our churches together and we'll pull together a, a tray ore or something like that. But, but not kind of the the kind of uh, I suppose more standard Good Friday service very often. Yeah. So uh, this year actually we had um, used the CPH uh, uh, Lenten service liturgy or series, and the Good Friday liturgy they put together. I thought they did a pretty good job of kind of blending the the chief service and the tenebrae, and so. Fortunately, this year we actually got the reproaches, and so, so the first part it's, a, it's from Micah six three. It says, "Thus says the Lord, What have I done to you, O my people? And wherein have I offended you? Answer me. Though I have raised you up out of the prison house of sin and death, and you have delivered up your redeemer to be scourged, for I have redeemed you from the house of bondage, and you have nailed your Savior to the cross, O my people." So that's round one. Then round two, thus says the Lord, what have I done to you, O my people, and wherein have I offended you? Answer me, for I have conquered all your foes. You have given me over and delivered me to those who persecute me. For I have fed you with my word and refreshed you with living water, and you have given me gall and vinegar to drink, O my people. Mm-hmm. And that's Jeremiah coming from Jeremiah 2, and then here comes the Isaiah one. This is the third one. Mm. It says, Thus says the Lord, What have I done to you, O my people, and wherein have I offended you? Answer me. What could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? My people, is this how you thank your God, O my people? Mm. And so mm. it's, and this is, you know, this is, that's like one of the last things you get in the liturgy. It's after you've heard the entire um, account from John uh, mm. of the crucifixion. And so this is, <clears throat> this is kind of the interesting thing with this whole passage. Right. And especially when you re- you draw in, uh, this does show up, this does come up in the lectionary. I looked it up, I was kind of searching it. Yeah. And it does come up on the lectionary uh Pentecost eighteen next year. So mm. so if anybody's keeping their calendar for October of next year. Um, <laughs> but the gospel lesson that day is the parable of the vineyard for Jesus. Right. And mm-hmm. which very, very much very heavily leans upon this. And then when you see that you realize this passage, it's a it is a multiple fulfillment prophecy. That right. is very short term, very much Isaiah is pointing to, and it gets very obvious later here in chapter five, the more immediate context. But it's right. also when you read hear Jesus' parable, you realize this is being repeated over and over and over. Right. And and even and when you hear it on Good Friday, you realize that this is being spoken to you. That mm-hmm. this is a warning to us, even right. Um, New New Testament, right? So, yeah, that, that's a point that's well made, and I think we've been seeing that a few times. I, I mean, uh, in, in all these, especially these these um, some of these books that are just they're they're written and, and they're they're so I guess immersed in their historical context, whether it be like Daniel or Ezra, and, and yeah, like they speak really directly to those circumstances, but the way that it just, it, there's this repetition throughout history 
um, this continuity with the people of God, just as you said, like it, it applies in the time uh, later, in the time of our Lord, in the time of the church, in the time of our own lives. And so um, it's really it's really great to be able to see that and be able to kind of just really watch and trace that pattern out. And uh, one of the things that you just said that made me think about that, did you say that the first reproach is from Micah 6? Did I, do I remember that correctly? Yeah. Yeah. So, and then it's interesting because like in Isaiah six, it's, it's very, I mean, it's very similar, right? Um, you've got that like in verse three, oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, right? Um, it, it's like very, it's very similar language here, you know, like, you know, just what, what did I do? Uh, what, what, what I didn't, what did I not do? You know, answer me. Um, and that's not the first place that we've seen this overlap between Isaiah and Micah. I mean, we saw it in the previous poem that began in chapter two, or it was almost word for word um, the same in some parts. And so we know that might that Micah and Isaiah they overlapped um, in the in the reigns rather of Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. And so it seems like you know to to your point about how there's an immediate fulfillment and then a latter one. We know that chapter one is looking at the the just uh, the, the the waste and the wreckage of the Assyrian conquest. You know, we're looking at just um, you know it, it's the the what's the language there? Uh, will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint. So they're already in a terrible state, and God is just asking, "Do you really want me to finish the job? Do I do I have to keep going further?" So we seem to be in that that vantage point of um, Hezekiah's reign during um, or in the aftermath of the Assyrians coming through. Then we get into chapter two, and it seems like when everything is still really good, whenever, I mean, at least materially speaking, when there's lots of wealth, um, lots of chariots and lots of silver and gold and all this. And so we seem to be in that time before Hezekiah, before the Assyrian attack. Now we're talking about the time of um, Jotham and Ahaz. And then what's interesting is when we get to Isaiah 6, um, it actually, he goes and he spells it out for us, which is extremely helpful. Um, it says there, in the year that King Uzziah died. So we go even further back. Um, it's no longer under Jotham and Ahaz, but it's like, you know, right in that transition point between Uzziah and Jotham. So um, it's interesting that Isaiah starts off that way, uh, kind of starting later and kind of pushing back a little bit further in time each time. So that seems like it situates chapter 5 here, um, pretty clearly in that same range as chapters two to four, um, the the opulent excess and um, the, the the corrupting influence of the idolatry under Ahaz and Jotham here before the Assyrians come in, right? Well, I've yeah. Well, from my understanding, it was some have said it was around the time of Uzziah as well um, mm -hmm. that this could have been written. So it might be well, that. This is actually more leading into chapter six. So it could, could be. So that's what I read. Well, yeah, no, and certainly, I mean, Uzziah, you know, he's <clears throat> he's remembered for a time of prosperity, right? And so that prosperity that he brought in um, was something that continued on under Jotham and Ahaz. So, I mean, it's kind of hard to distinguish these things. Um, the, the, mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting. I have read that, that Micah seems to have started up kind of, I, I think after Uzziah, at least that's what I had read. And so if we're seeing overlap with Micah here, I wonder if that suggests a little bit of a later date, but I mean, regardless, I think that in some ways it's fair to just kind of lump together, um, all three of them really. I mean, Hezekiah, as we saw last time was distinguished for bringing in those reforms, but, uh, and before Hezekiah, not so much. So uh, we got we got to actually go into a short break here before we press on. But everybody, hang with us. We're looking at Isaiah chapter five here on Thy Strong Word. Be right back.
These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. For years on Sunday mornings, Worldwide KFUO has been broadcasting live worship services for those unable to attend worship or for those who enjoy hearing God's word. This Sunday, our 8 a.m. worship comes from Blessed Savior Lutheran Church in Florissant, Missouri with presiding pastor, Reverend Matt Rugland. Our 10.30 worship comes from Beautiful Savior Lutheran Church in Bridgeton, Missouri with presiding pastor, Reverend David Brutcher. Join us on Sunday mornings on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. This is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller inviting you to join me every Monday afternoon on Cross Defense, 2 o'clock to 3 o'clock here on KFUO Radio, where we take up curious topics, curious Christian topics, to excite our imaginations, equip our minds, and comfort our consciences with the supreme and beautiful clarity of God's Word. It happens on Cross Defense every Monday afternoon, 2 to 3, here on KFUO. Please make plans to join us. And if you can't join us live, check out the podcast at kfuo.org. Welcome back, everybody, to Thy Strong Word. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. Today we're joined by our guest, Pastor Neil Wemus, pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church in Ida Grove, Iowa. And we're looking at Isaiah chapter 5, this song of the vineyard. And uh, man, you know, it's just, we were just talking about that. It starts off, and you know, of course, I mean, I just think of uh, where I'm at here in South Orange County, it's gotten more and more popular out here to do weddings over in Temecula, which is like kind of local um, South uh, California destination for, for winery visits and tours and even weddings. And so you just imagine, you know, he starts singing this song and everyone's thinking, oh, you know, it's like a love song and it's going to be so nice. And can you imagine then, you know, verses three and four coming out um, at at the wedding ceremony, right? Um, you know, what more was there to do for my vineyard? What have I not done in it when I looked for it to yield grapes? Why did it yield wild grapes? Uh, you know, like you were saying, um, you know, like if the vineyard is the is the metaphor for the the wife, the bride, um, and it's yielding wild grapes, um, this is an accusation of, uh, you know, <laughs> a, adultery, of, of uh, not being faithful, right? Yeah, I would not recommend this for a... <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> different, different chapter of oh. Isaiah, please. Right. Yeah, no, mm -hmm. yeah. Right, exactly. So, you know, we're looking at this. Um, and of course, that we were just saying that that's why it's so appropriate for the reproaches in that Good Friday liturgy. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's um, I, I, I hope that that's something that, that I can um, can look at soon. You know, I, I mean, I, lo I love celebrating Triduum, you know, that that whole time between Maundy Thursday and Easter. Um, but yeah, typically, typically I only am able to, to find a tenebrae service, but hopefully I can see that chief service sometime soon. But we were just considering the, that the question of context, right? How in the immediate context, um, perhaps this is one step further back in time from the Oracle that began in chapter two, maybe it's even further back. It's before, um, Jotham and Ahaz. And so maybe it's during Uzziah's reign. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe it's mm -hmm. concurrent with the one that begins in chapter two, and you don't get to step back until chapter six. Either way, it's clear um, it's a time of of plenty, right? It, that can, it's consistent. It says there in chapter five, verse one, that it's a vineyard dug on a very fertile hill. So, I mean, there's it's a time of prosperity. It's just the prosperity that we get is not the prosperity that God had in mind. Yeah, it's, it's producing, it's producing grapes. It's just not the right kind. Mm-hmm. And verse once we get into the later half of this, it really kind of hammers down what that is. And uh reading Luther, it's kind of interesting to read Luther's account on this is uh Luther goes very allegorical with everything that's going on in here. Mm -hmm. And so like he'll talk about the watchtower and he would he would say that the watchtower in the midst of it, he would talk about that being the being the place of worship. Um, so this is 
where uh, the, he, he quotes that, you know, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. And mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. Uh, so he points to use that as an illustration. He talks about the, the, the wall, the, um, that was the wall to the vineyard. And he would refer to that as the, the teaching of the law. And, and so it's becomes interesting when you get into this verses five through seven, when, when he starts, when the judgment comes, Mm-hmm. It kind of becomes interesting, and it actually kind of goes well yeah. with some of the other things Luther would write. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, definitely. You know, if it's a metaphor, if it's um, you know allegory here, it's the, the kind of the fun part is asking the, yourself the question. Okay, so what does everything stand for? And you know, some sometimes you you can't go press that too far. You know, I mean. Uh, you know, I'm just you, you think of all the all the different stories and, and allegories and parables, and sometimes sometimes something is is just the thing and sometimes there's not supposed to be some kind of deeper meaning like sometimes the bread is just bread right um, but sometimes it's not mm-hmm. so um that that's kind of the thing we're going to have to kind of keep an eye out for let's go ahead and read verses five through seven since you mentioned them and as i do i want to make sure i invite all of our live listeners to call in if you have a question or comment for us here if you're in st louis you can call 314-821-0850 or everybody, you can call 1-800-730-2727, or as always, an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. Well, let's take a look at these next three verses here, because they, 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 they put the pieces together, like you're saying. So here, picking it up in verse 5. And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So a lot of things going on in these uh, three verses here. Verse 7 seems to switch back out of the voice of God, um, back into the voice of Isaiah. We, we, instead of, you know, um, you know, I will make it a waste, or I will also command the clouds, um, we go to, for the vineyard um, of the Lord of hosts, and then, and he looked for justice, right? So it seems, you know, mm-hmm. you, you get that switch of voices and Isaiah, I mean, he really just kind of unlocks the whole, uh, I mean, he's not leaving everybody hanging here. Everyone's like scratching their heads, like, I wonder what everything represents. Uh, no, I mean, he just lays it out for you in, in verse 7. Okay, guys, the vineyard is God's people. The vineyard is Israel and Judah. And what's what's the the fruit? It's the fruit of good works. It's supposed to be the fruit of justice, but instead, injustice, bloodshed, which is, of course, very poetic because... Well, I mean, I mean, wine is, in fact, in the Old Testament, called in several places, wine is called the blood of grapes. And uh, that's the sort of blood they have on their hands, as we saw similarly um, in the material in Isaiah 2 and chapter 3, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, and as I was mentioning earlier, the thing that really, where the point where it really does, if they have any doubt as to who the owner of the vineyard is, the end of verse six pretty much gives that hammers at home when they read the, I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. And right. if, if they had any doubt at this point that this is talking about, this is coming from Yahweh in relationship right. to them, it became abundantly clear. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so when you read, you know, going back to that thing of the wall, when he says, I will remove its hedge, I will break down its wall it's kind of mm-hmm. interesting when Luther talks about the, um, you know, that this would be, that this could be referred, this might refer to the law is, you know, that God's word would be removed from them as a punishment. And uh, Luther would at times talk about this as that periods of time, almost as an act of judgment, God would take the word from, from the people. And it's, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, and it's kind of even the 
Um, I even think of Romans where uh, Paul talks about they get, they're given over to what ought not right. to be done and right. more into this God saying, you want it this way, here you go. Have it your way. Right. And yeah. So, that's right. The, the calamity does not necessarily bring about repentance. Of course, that's still the goal, but sometimes the immediate reaction in calamity is just um, calamity runs into a different direction. It just goes into desperation, and that's like what we saw in chapters 3 and 4. Okay, hey, you be the ruler of this of this pile of rubble, and, um, you know, the women saying, like, hey, you know, like the seven of us, you know, we'll all, we'll all be your wives. You know, I mean, just sometimes the calamity just brings about the desperation that was already there in the heart. So um, not necessarily like, like you were saying, you know, the word of the Lord comes forth and um, people just all embrace repentance. And I mean, we know from chapter four that some will, um, there's going to be some repentance here. There's going to be a remnant after all this destruction, there will be a branch. It says, right. That's going to be beautiful and glorious, but kind of putting the pieces together, the, the whole vineyard's going to get wrecked. And so if there's only one branch that survives, I mean, that, that's, that's pretty, um, I mean, it's pretty stark. Yeah. And that's where chapter four is so helpful to keep that in the background. It's a reminder that there is still this hope of the remnant as you, as this kind of just barrels down into deeper and deeper. And um, I mean, there look for justice, behold, bloodshed righteousness and outcry it's kind of interesting in the hebrew something you can't see in the english but yeah. uh, one little your esv actually makes a note of this it does um, that the hebrew the hebrew words for righteousness and outcry there's just one letter diff, hebrew letter difference between the two so it's kind of looks a little bit more poetic in the way that's written and yeah yeah, that definitely feels like it's like there's something deliberate about that. I mean, you've got you know justice mishpat, and then you've got for bloodshed mishpach, and so there, there's there's this very yeah similar sounding there than like righteousness um, sadaqah, and then the the cry of distress um, sadaqah. So I mean, yeah, just it's uh, there's there's a lot of poetry going. I mean, like and that's and that's fascinating too because it's operating both on the level of just the sounds in Hebrew, which is just, I mean, just beautiful. But then as we were saying too, it's also working on the kind of imagery and semantic and, and meaning level, you know, it's the idea of, I mean, how often in the Bible do you see that, that good works are called fruit, right? You got the fruit of the spirit, um, you know, like the fruit of good works, you know, you got uh, John the Baptist and our Lord talking, you know, produce fruits in keeping with repentance, Right. Um, but then you also have the the fruit of the sinful nature, right? I mean, like, so fruit is like all the time described um, as 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 works, and also then there's that connection. We talk about some of those parables of our Lord. The you know God goes and he examines the the tree, he examines the branch, looks at the kind of fruit that it's producing, um, and depending on that sort of fruit, that's going to be uh, the verdict that he then pronounces. Whether he says cut the tree down. Or okay, let's let's go ahead and trim it up, and we'll let it keep growing. So, um, it just yeah, it just it just flows together uh, so well. And then just that the idea of you know like the this this wine of bloodshed being produced by these wild grapes. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and, and read the, the next portion here. The next portion is pretty long. It's the section of woes, um, these declarations of, I mean, really, I mean, it's a kind of like cursing. Um, and so we'll want to break that down and try to figure out, you know, some of the language here doesn't seem, you know, super familiar to us. Uh, the, just in verse eight already, you know, those who join house to house. Like what is what exactly does that mean, right? So we should go ahead and, and read over it so we can kind of get a have some time to spend going over it and asking what is he talking about? What, what kind of injustice, what kind of outcry is happening there in Judah? So let's read that section of woes here beginning at verse 8. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there's no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate. 
large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exalts in her. Man is humbled and each one is brought low and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let, his speed his, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, and let it come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty of a bribe for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. All right, well, let's, let's pause there. So, I mean, that's kind of the declaration of woes. And when we get into the next portion here, there's going to be just like a further elaboration of the judgment against them. But so, I mean, we've had lots of descriptions here of what's wrong, what, what people are doing. Um, you know, there's this, uh, in the last part there, you know, there's just calling evil good and good evil. There's this idea of, um, you know, people who are saying, oh, yeah, you know, let, let the, the counsel of the Holy One draw near, let it come. Uh, you know, sure, bring it on. You've got people saying things. Um, you've got people saying, I guess, just speaking words of of injustice who are who are allowing themselves to be bribed. And then back in verse eight, like I said before, this joining house to house and field to field. So, what's going on with that? What what are these people doing? So, this is there's six of these woes. There's actually a seventh woe, uh, but you have to get. You won't get to hear the seventh one until we get to chapter ten, mm. but um, but it's you know it's when you read this, it's kind of an uncomfortable one for us to read. I think as Americans, mm. because you realize just how much this could be spoken right to us. Right, you know, verse eight to ten is you know house joining house to house is you know this is just basically the hoarding of abundance. And, you know, many, and, you know, talk build joining house to house, it's field to field till there's no, no more room. I mean, how many, how many of us have house that there's no more room hmm. and, you know, how much we as Americans just hoard things. Mm-hmm. And, and this is kind of that, this, this con, this compare in contrast, they're kind of a, contrast of irony that Isaiah has been writing actually starting in verse seven, where he had that justice versus bloodshed, righteousness versus outcry. Um, here you have again that, so they're building, there's, you know, they're joining house to house, field to field, don't till there's no more room, but many houses will become desolate, um, large and beautiful houses without inhabitants that, you know, this is all going to become nothing. And it's right. the complete yeah, well, and utter I, I irony. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, you know, it's a reversal, right? And I, I like what you're saying that, I mean, just, uh, wow, how it just seems like it could apply to us so easily. I mean, you know, you just you just think of, I mean, you know, here I am out in South Orange County and just, man, the, the real estate game out here, right? Ooh, buddy. Um, you know, it, it just feels like uh, everywhere you look, it's like here's more houses going up and it's just like, I, I mean, you know, uh, people are getting, you know, just priced out 
of existence out here. You know, I mean, there's people who have had families for generations, but like their kids can't afford to stay near family. Right. Like like the kids aren't going to know grandma and grandpa um, because they got to move somewhere else. It's just too expensive. And it's just, you got this feeling. It seems like we're just putting up another lot um, wherever we can. I, I think that's something like that, like kind of the, the bigger real estate management of, of the whole area is kind of what's being talked about in verses um, eight and verse eight, and then going into like verse nine, like you were saying, it's just, it, it's all just an opportunity for, for making money. Right. You know, and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and, and if that's the goal, then man, verse 10 is uh, going to be bad news because to, to, you know, to kind of put it in the, our own terms, it says there, you know, 10 acres of vineyard shall yield, but one bath. What, what does that mean? You know, a bath and an effa, those are both, they're basically the same unit of measure. Bath is, you know, we, you might suspect for liquids and effa for dry things, but either way, it's like six gallons. So, I mean, if you can imagine, you know, you've got like a 10 acre vineyard and all you get is six gallons of wine, that's a problem. You know, you, you go and you, yeah. you plant, you plant like a, you know, a ton of seed, uh, Homer, right. That's a pretty gigantic quantity, you know, for, for acres. Right. And you just get, you know, uh, six gallons of flour out of all that, that you're, you are making no return. This is uh, you made a huge investment and you are, you're going to go bankrupt. Mm-hmm. And this, this actually echoes the, the whole concept of the remnant that was mentioned in verse in chapter four. Mm-hmm. And so. Yeah. Right. Yeah, ex- ex- exactly. And, right. That there's, there's just not going to be nearly as much as everyone was counting on. Right. And then you get into verse 11 and 12, you have the, um, those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink. And so basically, you know, they're having, the time of their life and their, um, you know, life full of leisure. And the thing is, is the problem is, and actually, if you read this, the problem actually isn't that they're leisuring. The problem is at the end of verse 12, where it says, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. So in other words, you know, there is no worship. There is no thankfulness. There's no gratefulness. They're just, you know, Eat, drinking, eating, drinking, and being merry without yeah. having any ideas regard as to who has made it possible exactly. to allow them to be eat, drink, and be merry. Well, that's right. And, that's right. There's nothing wrong with holidays, right? There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with taking a day off and enjoying the good gifts of God, right? But why do we call—I mean, why do we have holidays? I mean, what, why is it called a holiday? holiday, holy day. I mean, the idea is you're getting the day off so that we can worship God and give him thanks, you know? And so the leisure is supposed to go with that thanksgiving, the acknowledgement of the giver and not just revelry in the gift. And so, I mean, what you have going on there is what we have going on now, you know, like you have holidays and it's like, what, what, who, who cares what the holiday is, right? It's just another excuse to I mean, drink more, frankly, you know, I mean, it's just like, hey, it's just another three day weekend, another four day weekend. Um, and so you get that mentality of we just forget why we're even doing this stuff. It's just an opportunity to, you know, just just to go more like more all out. Um, I mean, there's a lot that could be said, and I think you're totally right. Spot on. Like, it's scary how much this applies to our own situation here and all of our wealth and excess in Western society. But we, we got to go on here and read the last part. I'm hoping if we can read the rest of the okay. chapter, um, you can give us a few concluding thoughts here. So let's pick it up. We left off at verse 23. We can pick it up then at verse 24 here. So this is continuing after, after the woes. This is continuing the description of the judgment. Therefore, As the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them, and the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets." For all his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for nations far away, and whistle for them for the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. 
None is weary. None stumbles. None slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose. Not a sandal strap is broken. Their arrows are sharp. All their bows bent. Their horses' hooves seem like flint, and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion, like young lions. They roar. They growl and seize their prey. They carry it off, and none can rescue They will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. So, I mean, it's a very ominous description here. And just like my summary is that this seems like it's the opposite of the Exodus, right? Um, In in the Exodus, Mm -hmm. you know, you get that mention there, um, you know, growling of the sea, right? Um, Instead of God... Um, dispatching Pharaoh's army, right, um, and, and drowning them in the sea, and, and giving um, the Israelites, you know, the, the separation of light and darkness to help them to make them help them make their escape. This is just the opposite. God bringing on the darkness, bringing Pharaoh and his chariots and his bows and all his warriors, um, and closing them in with the sea. Um, and so um, the Exodus is undone here in judgment. We only got a couple minutes left, but your your thoughts uh, to wrap us up in the last minute or two here. Yeah, that is yeah, that's kind of interesting. Is um, yeah, the dark, the light is darkened by its clouds instead of the you know the pillar of fire by night, mm-hmm. and it's yeah, this is just very very harsh judgment as the the exile that has become, and you know I you know as we you know you read through Isaiah, you keep going. And a lot of the major prophets, um, you know, the ticking clock to that point of the exile, uh, it's something, you know, as you think about it, the very concept of an exile is something that's so incredibly that none of us as Americans have any concept of. Right. Um, you know, the old, I can't even think of, you know, imagine just whatever city you live in just completely being decimated and you're being forced to you know, take basically what you could carry and go off to, you know, you know, eight hour, like basically walk an eight hour drive, if that makes sense. Right. And yeah, that's, so for me, it'd be like walking to Chicago. Right. And it's, you know, this is, you know, this is the consequence of their constant rebellion, of their constant, um, disregard of God's law, of his word. And, you know, I, it's kind of those things where I wish, where I like the old uh, one-year electionary. At the end of the one-year electionary, they have a lot of these same type of readings out of the Gospels. Like, for example, the abomination of desolation. Mm-hmm. And you read that Jesus, and you'd have take going back to those words from um, Good Friday is that this is, you know, it's also could be, this is something that could be spoken as a warning to us, even right. um, as Christians. I mean, what, what has God done for us? What Christ has done for us? And yet, exactly. exactly. Well, and all this, all this darkness, you know, and all of this um, judgment, you know, what's the, what, what's the rescue? We're trapped, right? It's like we're Israel trapped mm-hmm. by the Red Sea all over again. And it's only in Jesus Christ who, takes the darkness and bears the brunt of the exile. He takes the exile for us so that we can be freed from exile in his, in his mm-hmm. resurrection. Um, all out of time today, but uh, Neil, thank you so much, brother, for joining us today. Excellent chapter to go over, and we got to have you on again uh, really soon. All right. Everybody, that's Pastor Neil Wemus, pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church in Ida Grove, Iowa. Thanks for tuning in today. Moving on to Isaiah 6, um, there's some really good stuff there that we use in the liturgy. Looking forward to that. We thank our producers at the Office of National Mission and our underwriters at the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Check them out at lhfmissions.org. Till next time, I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. Peace. Broadcast ministry of the LCMS. Your support is vital for this program to continue. You can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at kfuo.org. Thank you for listening and supporting Thy Strong Word.